Thank you, John, for praying a blessing upon the offering and for upon the preached word this evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, or find it on your app. Philippians 3, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 of this joyous passage. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. There's a story in Greek mythology about a man named Sisyphus. And Sisyphus, as, as the story goes, he was the king of an ancient city called Corinth. But that's not what he was famous for. He wasn't famous for being a king. In fact, he became famous for very infamous reasons. It's because he was the victim of a very particularly cruel punishment of the Greek gods. You see, Sisyphus was a bit of a tyrant. He was a cruel leader and on occasion, he would have people come into his kingdom and he would kill them for his own pleasure. And in fact, he was also very clever, having cheated death twice by tricking the Greek god of the underworld. Sisyphus fancied himself to be quite a clever fellow. Unfortunately for him, Zeus wasn't quite as pleased with his antics. And so Zeus punished Sisyphus for his crimes. Maybe you remember this part of the story by sentencing him to a lifetime of rolling a boulder up a hill, only for that boulder to roll back down to the bottom of the hill every time he got close to the top. Terrible punishment, eh? Not fun. So Sisyphus, would, he would be always pushing, never achieving, never experiencing the satisfaction of a job completed, of a job well done. It's terribly cruel. 
That punishment would be exhausting. It would be frustrating. It would be joyless. And so I thought to myself, boy, this is a perfect illustration to illustrate what the Christian life is like. Well, obviously it's not. It's not the perfect illustration for what the Christian life is supposed to be like, but oftentimes it kind of comes down to that, doesn't it? Maybe it's, maybe it's how you feel sometimes. Maybe the Christian life is exhausting to you. It feels frustrating, joyless, empty. It, it feels like the Christian life is just this endless list of, uh, this endless scroll of rules and, and laws and traditions that you need to do your best to keep so that you can be confident that you're going to be saved. Maybe the Christian life just kind of feels like constant work like pushing a heavy boulder up a hill, and, and you need to keep pushing that boulder up the hill until you get to the top so that you can earn that joy and freedom and satisfaction that comes from completing the job. Is that how it feels to you tonight? See, that's a pretty common view of the Christian life, unfortunately, and, and even in, and, and dare I say, especially in our conservative, reformed Presbyterian churches. And what's the result? Well, so often our churches are filled with people who are exhausted, frustrated, joyless, and that's just not the way the Christian life is supposed to be. The title of this sermon is The Inestimable Joy of Receiving the Whole Christ. And Paul unpacks this. He unpacks this throughout this passage, and so we're going to explore this theme from three points. First, by seeing how Paul proclaims joy and freedom as the fundamental rights of the Christian. Second, as he identifies those obstacles that keep us from experiencing that joy. And finally, we're going to see where he roots the ultimate foundation of our joy in this passage. So let's begin at verse 1. The fundamental right of the Christian to rejoice. If you had to narrow down the theme of Philippians to one word, just one word, that theme would be joy. Joy. In this small book, it's just four chapters, it's just 104 verses, 16 times Paul refers to this great Christian rite that we have of joy. And we see him start our passage tonight with that same tone. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. If you read through Philippians, it's, it's, it's hard, it's, it'd be hard not to get a read on Paul's character. He's, he's the eternal optimist. He's the living embodiment of joy. Clearly, we could say that Paul wasn't Dutch. But Paul wasn't always that way. He, he was a little bit more cranky and ornery back in the day. And if you have your Bibles open, you can turn with me to Acts 8. Acts 8 is where we first see Paul make an appearance in Scripture, and we're going to see a very different man here. Acts 8, verse 1. After Stephen gave his great sermon and became the first Christian martyr, we read in Acts 8, and Saul, Paul, approved of his execution. And verse 3, but Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then fast forward to chapter 9. Here he is again. But Saul, Paul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he could imprison Christian men and women. This doesn't sound like the happiest, jolliest fellow. Well, if you keep reading later in Acts 9, we're going to see a pivotal moment in Paul's life. It's a, it's a story we're all familiar with. His, his road to Damascus conversion, where he heard the call of Christ, where, where Paul himself, the great persecutor of the Christian church, he was converted. He believed on the Son of God, and, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like that, everything changed for him in, in that moment, that, that murderous angry persecutor of the church. That man who was zealous to uphold Jewish laws and, and customs, he became one of the loudest to proclaim Christ, declaring in verse 20 of Acts 9, he is the son of God. And we know the rest of Paul's story. He, after making this statement, he was scorned by his fellow Jews. He was chased out of town. He was, he was hated and imprisoned for preaching the gospel, imprisoned in Rome at the very time that he wrote Philippians for preaching Christ. And yet, even though he's in prison right now as, as he's writing Philippians 3, yet he is filled with joy. Joy. Free, joyful, happy. Because even though he was in physical bondage. Paul was experiencing spiritual freedom. He had been made right with God. He had been made right by the justifying work of Jesus Christ. Are you hearing what Paul is saying here? Harvest, joy is the fundamental right of the Christian who has received Christ and been made right with God. Paul's joy, our joy, it, it starts at the moment of our justification when we're made right with God. And, and maybe you're here tonight and, and you know Christ and, and you believe in him and you've confessed his name and repented of your sins. You know that Jesus Christ, he is the only source of salvation and, and you truly and sincerely believe that. Maybe you've been raised your whole life knowing that. And yet you find yourself tonight in and spiritual bondage. Perhaps, like we saw in the introduction, you've accepted the idea in your mind that the Christian life is just a life of bondage, that, that it's a life of trying to get better, but, but constantly falling short, constantly feeling insufficient, and, and maybe, maybe hopefully that joy that, that could be yours, maybe that will come when you get to heaven, if you get to heaven. Maybe you've even convinced yourself that you just don't deserve joy because you haven't been good enough. It, is that you? I've certainly had these thoughts myself from time to time. And we need to explore then, if, if joy is the fundamental right of the Christian life, if, if joy starts at justification, then why are so many Christians still burdened with this idea that they'll never be able to do enough? Well, Paul goes on here in Philippians 3 to address one common issue that, that robs the Christian of this fundamental right that they have. And this is what he identifies, and I'll say this twice. 
He identifies the reinforcing of the responsibilities of the law as a, law, as a means of attaining gospel freedom. Say that again. Paul identifies this as the thing that keeps us from joy. The reinforcing of the responsibilities of the law as the means to gaining gospel freedom. Let's go forth and see how he unpacks that, starting in verse 2. He writes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's hard to miss that key change, isn't it? Paul, the apostle, filled with joy. He's, he's rejoicing in the gospel in Philippians 1. He's, he's rejoicing that Christ is being preached, even if it's being preached by people that have selfish motivations. He's, he's rejoicing in the Philippian church's partnership in the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1, again, I say, it's no trouble to me to say it again, rejoice. He's happy. Philippians 3, verse 2, he's mad. What happened? What what brought about that key change? It's a massive shift in Paul's attitude here. And to understand what's going on, we need to know who he's addressing. We need to know why they have made Paul righteously upset and how he responds to them. And so first things first, who is Paul talking to here? We've heard sermons from Pastor Dale about these people. It's the Judaizers. It's the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians. They had heard the preaching of the gospel and they had accepted that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah who had come to redeem Israel. So far, so good. However, Paul is upset with them because they taught an extra thing to the gospel. They, they taught that in order for conversion to be complete, in order for people to be confident in their salvation, particularly the Gentiles, they had to join up with the Jewish people and, and fulfill the Jewish customs and fulfill the Jewish law. And in essence, they made circumcision and Jewish law-keeping an essential part of what? Justification of being made right with God. This is why Paul is upset. They were making works a necessary part of the process of salvation. They were clouding the gospel, and as a result, they were holding those new Gentile believers, those ones who were clinging to Christ in bondage, they were restricting their joy. Well, Paul responds to them in a very clear way. He tells them what he thinks of their religion. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. It's brutal. It's not something that you would want on your tombstone. But it's actually more than just a clever insult. What, what Paul is doing there, he's using the Judaizers' own language against them. You see, the Judaizers, they would have looked outside of their congregation. They would have looked at the Gentiles and they would have used these exact terms to describe the pagans. They would have called them dogs. They would have referred to them as evildoers. In fact, mutilators of the flesh has a little bit more packed into it. We can think back to 1 Kings 18, that epic showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And what did the prophets of Baal do to try to get the attention of their God? They cut themselves. They mutilated their own flesh, those pagan Baal worshipers. And so when Paul uses this language to describe the Judaizers, he's, he's 
He's using the ultimate insult. He's not saying they're close to Christianity. He's saying they're, they're pagans. And they think that circumcision is the way to get the attention of God, but they are wrong. And in contrast to this, Paul goes on in verse 3 to describe what true religion looks like. In verse 3, he says, But we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's using that same rhetorical device. He's using the term circumcision, that term that the Judaizers would have proudly called themselves to, to let other people know that they were part of the end group and everyone else was outside. And he's reclaiming that for the true people of God and leaving the Judaizers on the outside. It's, it's a great juxtaposition that Paul is speaking here. And then he lists three marks of true religion. Those who worship by the Spirit of God, meaning, meaning that you've been born again by the indwelling of the Spirit. Those who glory or, or boast in Christ Jesus, actively looking to him alone as the grounds of your justification. And then those who put no confidence in the flesh, acknowledging that their own works, their own traditions, their own lineage, that these things are worthless to make them right with God. And then Paul goes on to reinforce that reality in verses 4 through 6, where he identifies himself with the Judaizers, saying, I fulfill all of these things that you so cherish, these things that you love, these things that you cling to, these things that you hope in. I identify with all of them. They're worthless. I've counted all of these things loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's polemic against the Judaizers couldn't be more clear here, could it? Our works, our law-keeping, it contributes nothing to our righteousness. We can clean up our act as much as possible. We can, we can do everything we can to try to be worthy of adoption into the family of God, but we will always fall short. We will never be good enough. As Paul says uh, in Romans, all of our best works are as filthy rags, so our justification could never come by our works. I can see you all looking at me right now. We, we know this, and I, I know that you know this. It's in our catechisms. It's, it's in our Sunday school classes, our catechism classes. Judaizers are bad. Don't be like them. Got it. And listen, you're, you're right. I'm I'm not breaking any new ground here that, that wasn't already covered 500 years ago in the Reformation. This is the bedrock of, of the Reformed faith. And if you're a member of this church, then doctrinally, we're all good with the idea that justification is by faith alone. No one would argue that. But while this is true, we, we can sometimes tend to be a little bit more like the Judaizers than we would want to admit. No, we don't believe that the law can save us, but the issue with the Judaizers, it was, it was far more comprehensive than this. They also relied on the law, their ability to fulfill those things, their Jewish traditions. Those were the assurance of their faith. They derived their confidence for their justification from their ability to keep their law. They believed that they needed Christ, that's true, but they also believed that the more that they obeyed, the harder that they tried, the, the more good works they could produce, the more confident they could be of their salvation. This is about assurance of faith as well. And brothers and sisters, this is where we tend to get it wrong. 
See, we can, we can embody this idea that, that Jesus Christ got us in the door. But now it's up to us to earn our keep. It's up to us to, to prove that we were worthy so that we can be assured that God loves us. See if I can illustrate this point. We read earlier the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. So picture this scenario and put yourself in that place. At one time, you were a poor and needy beggar, estranged from the family of God. You, you were like that prodigal son. You had run from home. You had blown your fortune, but then you were graciously received back into the family of God. Your father ran up to you and came to greet you and embraced you and prepared a feast for you on the basis of Christ's saving, justifying work, justified by faith alone. So far, so good? Well, fast forward to the next day. Party's over. You, the prodigal, you've, you've been received back into the family of God. Now what? Well, now it's time to earn your keep. The Lord has graciously received you back into his family. Now, now it's up to you to prove to him and to yourself that, that he made the right decision. And so you start living according to the rules of the house, but, but not out of joy, but out of obligation and fear. You fear that if you don't follow the rules of the house, that, that you might lose the father's favor. You, you fear that he might even kick you out of the house. And so on your better days, where you're following those rules more closely, you, you walk around with your held, head, head held high. You're feeling good about yourself. You're feeling confident that you're in the Father's good favor, but, but then on those days where you're not doing so well, where you've fallen into sin, where, where you know that you just haven't been good enough, well, you're, you're peeking around every corner to see if your Father is watching. You're worried that, that if he catches you in your sin, that, that if he saw your fail, fail, failure, then he would question why he ever gave it to you in the first place. And and you might start to wonder if he will cast you out of the house. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, when we, when we put that in the context of the prodigal son, because we see the father's love on such great display, we think, how could that father who, who took his son in for no reason inside of himself suddenly turn against him? And it is, it's, it's ridiculous. The father wouldn't turn immediately the next day and start ruling according to martial law disciplining his son and, and kicking him back on the street. Yet that's how so often so many of us are living. You see, we, we have the first part of the story down pat. The gospel gets us back into the good graces of God. But, but then what happens after that? Well, we often feel a burden upon ourselves to stay in his good graces. Thus, we wholeheartedly declare that salvation is by faith alone. But then somehow, we come to believe that assurance of that faith is earned through what we're able to do, through our own efforts. I'll say that again. We, we come to believe that the work of salvations was Christ, and the work of assurance, well, that's on us. We've got to pick up the slack. We have to carry our load if we're going to have that. And as a result, the root of our confidence, the root of our assurance, it's turned into these tangible, measurable, law-keeping things. 
We may think to ourselves, salvation is through Christ alone, but, but I need to be part of the right church denomination to be assured of that. We confess with our lips that salvation is through Christ alone, but, but I can only be assured of that if I affirm the right doctrinal beliefs. We say salvation is through faith alone, in, in Christ alone, but my ability to live righteously, to follow the law, to, to keep these certain rules, this is the foundation of my assurance. And then what happens? The ultimate goal of the Christian life. It becomes proving our worth by resisting sin as much as possible, by perfecting our doctrine as much as we can, by, by obliging ourselves to be part of the purest possible church. But do you see what just happened when we did that? We just smuggled that law and we brought it right back in to the equation of our salvation. And what inevitably happens what inevitably happens when we, when we fail to do these things good enough? What happens when you're not in the purest church? What happens when, when your doctrines fall short, when you're proven wrong? What, what happens when you, you keep on falling and failing in this indwelling sin that you just can't seem to kick? Well, your assurance of faith will disappear. You'll begin to feel yourself unworthy. You begin to wonder if the Father's discipline is coming your way or if perhaps he'll kick you out of the house. You might even start to wonder if it was all an illusion, if you were ever in the house to begin with. You see, when we, when we smuggle the law back into the equation of salvation to mark our assurance... Then along with that, we've smuggled back everything that goes along with that condemnation under the law. Our guilt, our shame, our unworthiness, our desperation, our hopelessness and, and sadness. And, and when our assurance is gone, our joy will certainly be gone with it. Is that you? Is that you? Do you profess that salvation is by faith in Christ alone, yet struggle with your assurance of faith because you don't feel worthy? Have you confessed faith in Christ, yet, yet still look at the law with fear, feeling like somehow, some way, you need to do everything right lest you risk the Father's discipline? Is, is the confidence for your salvation, is it rooted in your accomplishments, fluctuating from day to day based on your performance? Are you living in bondage tonight? Are you living in bondage to fear rather than living out of your freedom and joy? Well, as Paul goes on in the rest of the passage tonight, he addresses this problem. And in doing so, he, he turns our eyes away from ourselves and, and fixes them on the finished work of Christ. And we'll see this in our final point, the ultimate foundation of our joy. Look with me at verse 7 of Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then again, first part of verse 8, he says the same thing. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And again, he repeats himself at the end of verse 8. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Is it clear yet what Paul's saying? He obviously doesn't want us to miss this because he just repeated himself three times in, three, in two verses. 
our traditions, our laws, our doctrinal or denominational affiliations, our lineage. These things are rubbish, worthless, good for nothing, totally insufficient as a means of justifying us and as a means of proving our justification. But immediately after these three statements, he doesn't leave us without hope. He tells us what is sufficient. It's Christ. Gaining him, being found in him, in essence being absolutely and inseparably united to him in faith. Being united to Christ. This is the foundation of our justification. And this is the assurance of our justification. Paul goes on to explain why at the end of verse 9. It's because in our union with Jesus Christ, we become partakers of the very, hear these three words, righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. When you, when you put off your self-righteousness, everything that you think you're doing, and you place your faith in Christ alone, and you, you're united to him, you become a partaker of the righteousness of God himself. Do, do you see how huge that is? Do you see how amazing that is? Do you see how ridiculous that is, that, that hopeless sinners like us would receive the righteousness of God? This, this changes everything. This, this means that God could no more judge you, hate you, condemn you, than he could condemn his own son, who, by the way, is resurrected and is reigning at his right hand. When we come to Christ in faith, we get to say, I know Christ. I have gained him, and I will be found in him. The, the curse of the law, it has no authority over me because I am Christ, and, and he is mine. I have the righteousness of God. And because we're partakers of that righteousness, we are partakers of all of his benefits. We will be partakers of resurrection life in heaven with him for eternity. What does that mean for us practically? Well, when someone asks you, how do you know that you are saved? What grounds do you have for your assurance? What reason do you have to be confident in, in your salvation when you fail time and time again? What reason do you have to boast? You don't talk about what church you go to. You don't talk about what confession of faith, what, what doctrines you ascribe to. You, you don't tell them how well you have behaved. You, the only answer is this. I'm united to Christ. The righteousness of God is mine because I am united to Christ. And do you see what happens when we understand this truth? It's pure joy. It's pure joy because even on the days when you don't feel like you're enough, and there are going to be a lot of those days, you, you nevertheless never doubt that Christ is. Joy, because even when people may seek to bind your conf con conscience, you, you can confidently declare that, that Christ is your only hope. Christ. Christ. Only Christ. 
Through him we have been united to the very righteousness of God. There can be no other confidence. There can be no other evidence. There can be no other hope. It's Christ, and it's Christ alone. Do you understand the impact of this? this? This is what it means to receive the whole Christ. That he is the foundation of our justification as well as the foundation of our assurance. To go back to that previous illustration that we used, when, when that prodigal son wakes up the next morning, he will wake up not in fear but in freedom. He has got nothing more to prove. His, his obedience could do nothing more to earn him the Father's favor than what's already been earned for him. And his disobedience could do nothing to spurn the Father's love because the Father has covered him. The Father's love isn't founded upon what we can do, what we have done, but what Christ has accomplished. So it's the righteousness of Christ that justifies us. Our union with him assures us of our justification and I know you're wondering, what place does the law have for the redeemed sinner then? Should we cast it off as, as worthless? Well, as Paul writes in Romans 6, certainly not. But it does change our perspective about the law, doesn't it? You see, for the redeemed sinner, the law is good. The law is that gracious revelation of God about what the good life looks like. It's our roadmap to life. And he's given to us even now so that we can start experiencing what the good life really is, what it really looks like. It's not something to be, uh, to, to be performed out of compulsion or fear, but it's to be learned and to be studied and to be followed as an expression of that in inestimable joy and freedom that is ours by virtue of our union with Christ. In Christ, our view of the law, it changes from I have to do this or else to I get to do this because. Do you see that shift? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Then rest in him for your salvation and rest in him for your assurance and serve him out of the overflow of that inexpressible joy that is yours in being united to him. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ tonight, then hear this. There is no other way to be made right with God apart from him. There is no righteousness that you can perform that would ever come close to measuring up. There is no freedom. There is no joy. There is no peace apart from being united to him. But Christ has said that you can come if you come to him in faith. You can be free in him tonight, right now. Come and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who, who paid for your sins by dying on a cross. Come and believe that he has risen from the dead and he is even right now reigning at the right hand of God. Come and believe that salvation and freedom and peace and joy is yours if you place your faith in him and his finished work. Come and partake of that joy that, that comes from believing in him and repenting of your sin and living your life for his glory. Come and see what it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, Lord, we have heard your word from Philippians 3. And Lord, it's this temptation that we're all drawn to by nature to do it ourselves. And Lord, even though we rest in you in our justification, Lord, we know that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, yet so often we still get this confused and we think that we need to do something to earn our assurance, to make sure that our status with you is secure. And so we navel-gaze and, and we look at what we have done, what we have believed, where we go, and we hope in some way that that might be enough to assure us that we're right with you. But Lord, these things are rubbish. There is no hope in these things. But Lord, there is hope in Christ. Lord, as Pastor Adrian prayed earlier, he is a steadfast anchor for the soul. And when we live in light of faith that he has paid for all of our sins, that he has promised that, that if we come to him in faith that he will cover us then, Lord, then we have found this inestimable joy. Lord, we live our lives in freedom. We live our lives with clarity. We look at the law not as our condemnation, but as our roadmap to life. Lord, let that be true for us as we go into this week. When we're tempted to, to do our best, to earn our way, to earn our confidence, Lord, break down our walls and remind us of this great truth of justification in Christ alone. Lord, what impact it has for us tonight. Lord, pray that you would bless this word and that your spirit would go forth. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Our song of response this evening just proclaims that blessed truth over and over and over again. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, will stand to sing the verses.
Dear people of God, loved by him, he blesses you. He sends you out with confidence into this week, not wondering what his disposition is toward you, but knowing and assured of his love for you this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.